Welcome to Today's Entrepreneur, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business, presented by FL Montreal. Dan Delmar and Mike Newsman with you today for actually our season finale before we take a break for the summer. And uh, Mike, uh, good afternoon. Nice to be back. And uh, we'll, we will be back in the fall on, on Today's Entrepreneur. We will, Dan. Good uh, good to have you back as well. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be back in the fall. It, it doesn't... I, can't even imagine that we're already at the end of another season, but uh, time flies, and it's been uh, it's been another great year of uh, of entrepreneurs and stories, and uh, I think very uh, you know for a lot of variety this year. So it's been it's very very interesting. It's been really really interesting. It's a great season. Um, thanks, by the way, to Orla Johannes for filling in for me last week, and we're ending the season with Jean Luc Laverne of Laverne Group talking about upcycling and getting rid of that just mountains of plastic waste. And this is an entrepreneur who is really doing something about end-of-life plastics, printers, TVs, other electronics. He's repurposing them and uh, making them into new products so we don't have to dig more oil out of the ground. So we'll talk to Jean-Luc Laverne to end off our season. I think it's our 13th. (laughs) I think we're going, we might be going to our 13th or 14th. I've lost track by now. Um, but uh, nonetheless, Mike, it's a, it's a pleasure to end it on such a, an optimistic note today. Most definitely. Most definitely. Let's begin um, with some news and notes. And I wanna, wanted to run this by you to start. Uh, the concept of self-esteem as it's applied mm-hmm. to the workplace. I'm reading a really interesting book called uh, The Quick Fix. It's by a journalist named Jesse Single. And in it, it's about various cases of fad psychology. And he has a whole chapter on self-esteem. And he does delve into the corporate culture around self-esteem. Yeah things like um, pep rallies or power posing takes a lot of um, uh, space in the book. He argues, and there's more evidence to suggest that these sort of techniques don't really have any scientific backing and that we spend a little bit too much time on concepts like self-esteem and maybe not enough on the basics of mental health. What are your thoughts on some of these inspirational tactics like power posing in the workplace? Well, you could probably go on for an entire episode of, uh, of, of this show based on this topic. Um, you know, for the longest time, people have been trying to build self-esteem and the way we go. And there is definitely no uh, scientific background to a lot of these fads. And, you know, the interesting one you mentioned, uh, you know, power posing, which goes back as far as 2010 with, with Amy Cuddy kind of being the, uh, the guru, I guess, of setting it up. And it was all about stances and poses. So, you know, you put your hands on your hips in the superwoman uh, kind of pose with your legs apart, or do you have the lean in? Uh, do you have, you know, how you sit with your hands behind your head uh, at your desk? You know, all of these things have a, a, an impression, and some of it is an impression on ourselves, and some of it is an impression on those people that we're talking to. Um, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, this reminds me of, of a lot. Of, I mean, you could take this into dress, you know, how you dress for uh, an event, how you dress, uh, so long as you're building confidence at the end of the day. Uh, and whatever brings that forward to you is about as scientific as you really need to be, right? You, you need to be confident. You need to exert that confidence. You need to be able to show people that you're, you're, you, you've got presence and you've got confidence. So that ability to make yourself feel stronger will always be a positive and will always be will always be another fad. There will always be another way to get that out. Um, I think ultimately at the end of the day, there is a strong correlation obviously between confidence, self-esteem and mental health. And, you know, it's very difficult to, uh, unless you're going to be the, you know, the greatest actor or actress on the face of the earth uh, to 
emit confidence and strength when you're feeling very weak mentally. Now, some people have learned it over the years. You put on the show as you need to, uh, what's the old expression, uh, fake it till you make it uh, type of scenario. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I think whatever we draw, whether that is hairstyles, I've heard some people say facial hair at the end of the day, they feel they wear a beard, they, they feel more confident. It doesn't make a difference to me. Whatever happens to work, work. One thing I would note um, about the book is, is that they do look at some workplace phenomena that, um, that are not so science-based with some skepticism. So they do tackle the, the thing that we call grit, for example, which I think is interesting to reflect on. Um, and similarly, I would say one's gut. What is, what is having a gut? What is a gut decision? And can we wrap our brains around that and, uh, and just define the concept so that entrepreneurs can learn to trust their gut? So basically, you're not talking about the gut I've acquired over 15 months of COVID. <laughs> not that um, gut. No, what we're basically that gut feel. And I, and I think most successful entrepreneurs uh, have this sense of gut. And if you were to ask me to define it, it's, it's that ability to, to make a decision, use judgment without there being necessarily the concrete facts in order to support it. I mean, we grow up in a world where we are data driven. I mean, if you look at all of the AI components and everything that are out there today, all we're doing is bombarding everybody with information. But, you know, in most cases, we'll always remember that no matter how much data you have access to, you have to do something with it. Uh, in order for it to really, you know, be, become a decision-making process. And I think the one thing that, uh, that people forget is, you know, there's only so many things you can define as black and white in making a decision. Decision is a very complex environment uh, that is based on, you know, experience, uh, based on the way you feel. And, you know, gut to me is always that I can't quite explain it to you, but I know it's right. And, and I, it's very difficult to have that gut feel when you're starting out. Uh, but if you ask any successful entrepreneur or you ask a successful hockey player or you, you know, ask anybody, there's a gut feel. That successful hockey player, no matter how good they are, has to have a gut feel where his teammate's going to be, regardless of how many times you've practiced it, because something may happen to throw you off track. So ultimately, at the end of the day, to me, gut is completely and totally correlated to decision making, which is correlated to experience and judgment. I found that the people that have the best gut instincts are the ones who get up early and read a lot in the morning and who have a wealth of information and court judgments and white papers and they're stored in the back of their mind and they just don't know exactly where the info is coming from, but they call it their Yeah, gut. I call it at the end of the day, uh, that's pretty much, uh, you know, the fountain of useless information sometimes. And I'm really good at cocktail parties and trivial pursuit because I get up early and read. But so if, you're, if that was a compliment, Dan, I'll take it. I wasn't even trying to compliment you. I was, I was actually complimenting myself as well. But, but I, guess, I guess we both have good gut instincts. 100%. Um, all right, moving on. Something more uh, precise now. In uh, This is from Harvard Business Review. Um, ransomware attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, definitely making the news over the past couple of weeks. Some high-profile ones in the United States as well. Um, we've said this for, for over a decade. But obviously, when it comes to data security, we're in a whole new paradigm right now. And it's something that everyone should pay attention to. Yeah, you know, ransomware is is just really one part of the whole data security and, and data breaching environment. If you look at the oil company, the pipeline company that, uh, you know, that basically put the entire East Coast on a freeze for a few days as they were hacked. Uh, you know, there's a number of government offices that have been hacked, um, you know, and, and when they get in, the ransomware basically at the end of the day says, I'm going to take a hold of your computer, I'm going to freeze your data, and you're going to pay me. 
basically like a kidnapping environment. You know, if we, we watch all those crime shows on TV, it's essentially the same effort. And, uh, you know, once you pay, you go back. Now, is there honor among thieves at the end of the day? Uh, and does this bring in a whole discussion of Bitcoin and utilization of, you know, funds that people can't necessarily access? Yeah, again, I think this is another show in its entirety uh, on this. But I think the thing that we forget is that there are so many ways to get into our systems. And, you know, if you've got more than one person, the chances are you've got a multitude of possibilities for somebody to hack in when one person for one moment for one has a moment of weakness, uh, opens an email they shouldn't, forgets to set up their VPN before they before they log in. And all of a sudden, somebody has jumped and taken a hold of your computer, your data, your system or whatever that case is. This other piece from Harvard Business Review also caught our attention. Um, how to identify and hire lifelong learners um how that this is an interesting concept i mean some people i suppose mike you know go into a job and they want to rise and they want to learn and be and, and grow within the system and and others just want to do the job and that's okay too how do we identify uh, those two groups well, I think part of it is, is what are you searching for when you're looking for an employee? I mean, it's nice to say you're going to hire somebody that has uh, aspirations and wants to continue to learn and wants to continue to improve. But if that's not what that position calls for, then you're not matching the requirement. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that we, we should be learning every day until we die at that point. Uh, we should, you know, that's about the only time we should stop learning. And, and whether that is socially, whether that is economically, whether that's commercially, whether that is emotional intelligence, I mean, we owe it to ourselves and those people around us to continue to learn. In a corporate environment, um, you know, exactly what you said may happen. You may have people who really don't have that aspirations, that aspiration to move forward, and they stagnate, uh, partially because they're no longer au courant. And, and we're starting to see this a lot in, you know, businesses, and there's an inverse relationship with loyalty and technology usage. Um, and a lot of times what we're having is, you know, employees that have been with us for 30 years that have been so loyal, get outdated by technology. And, you know, how do you continue to make them relevant? So it, to me, when you go to market, look for somebody that always wants to learn, because I think what it does is it expresses this sense of mind flexibility, this desire to continue to learn, which is never a bad thing, regardless of what position you may be taking. There's a startup that um, that came out recently in recent weeks. Uh, the name escapes me, but they are basically, uh, it's a hiring app, not unlike mm -hmm. a, a job board, but it outlines one's career path in the job process. So you know going in what your path to success is. What do you think about systems like that that show you how to succeed? Well, I mean, everybody needs a starting point. So if you're going to use that as your basis for uh, stepping forward, then I think it's great. Um, you know, the one thing we do learn is that, you know, un unlike my generation, the millennial generation will have a number of careers over their lifetime, not jobs, but different careers. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody can can lock in on one particular domain or one particular area and say that is going to be it for the rest of my life. And I think the more we read, the more we're aware of what's going on, the more information we absorb, uh, in, in, in a sense, you know, lifelong learning, uh, the more the opportunities arise and the more we see possibilities in different areas. So I think the app is a really good, <laughs> go back to high school, right? That was the guidance counselor back in high school. You know, you did your, uh, your, cape, your, uh, your aptitude test and said, you know, you should be a veterinarian and you should be the garbage man or garbage woman. And ultimately at the end of the day that you hope that that was the starting point and, <laughs> and not the ending point. Lastly, Mike, real quick, um, parting thoughts for those entrepreneurs who will be organizing a return to work. 
in the coming weeks. Any last minute advice uh, before people get back to the offices in the fall? Yeah, um, I think a lot of therapy is going to be involved. I, I really do feel that this coming back to work is just a, it's a, it's a blank canvas. And, and I think there's a lot of people with a lot of ideas. And I think one of the things that we're going to have to, to take into account is don't come back with, you know, before March, whatever it was, March 13th, when we went home, whatever worked March 12th, doesn't mean it's going to work October 15th, when you bring everybody back. I think you have to evaluate the things that you've been doing well for the last 15 months, or by then the last 18 months. Uh, and you have to evaluate which you can use, which you cannot use, which you can modify, what you can change. Uh, we've talked uh, in, in depth before, Dan, on this whole concept of acceleration. Uh, and I think there's an awful lot of things that have been accelerated because of COVID that are going to have to find its way into uh, how we come back to the office, whether that is physical workspace, whether that is the way we do things. Uh, there, there's a, just a lot to, to come forward. And, you know, I've said this on many occasions and, and, and I still feel it's, you know, more every day that goes by, it's more true. Sending people home and protecting them was easy. Bringing them back. In a, in a joint environment where everybody's comfortable is going to take some time. It's time to welcome our profile for today. Jean-Luc Laverne is the founder and president of Group Laverne. They have a very interesting business. They recycle end-of-life plastics, printers, TVs, and other electronics, and uh, make them into new things so we don't have to uh, basically dig out more oil from the ground. Uh, Jean-Luc, welcome to CJD. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. So uh, please explain uh, better than I did what your business is, please. Well, we're basically making plastic circulars. So we basically take product that would normally end up into a landfill or things like this. We actually segregate all that and turn it into raw material that then serves the material itself to serve new product itself. So we make plastics, uh, end-of-life plastics, becoming new plastics. So instead of using virgin plastics, you use ours and you can make all kinds of product with ours. I've spent the best part of the last 25 years with I don't know how many business plans and how many cash flows thrown across my desk on projects that involved recycling, whether it was rubber tires or whether it was plastic containers. Uh, you know, what made you get into this area other than obviously a love for the environment? environment? How, how did you how did you stumble upon this? Well, I, I wouldn't give you a, an, an interesting story since I knew I was going to do that because if I knew what I was doing, I may not have started doing it. So let's start with the fact that I was working for a plastic distributor early on in the early 80s. So, and, and then at one point in time, something came about where um, one company was shutting down and I had an opportunity to maybe move on. And I actually went in, bought a very small grinder um, to actually as a little machine that would take plastic into small chips. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try to do something on my own. I uh, didn't like the environment I was working with. So I have to thank my boss for being such a, um, a little bit different person. I'll say it this way. But uh, that's how I started in business, not doing I was going to do it, be in business. So, so I mean, we've all, we all hit pitfalls. What, what are some of the bigger uphill battles you've had over the last uh, you know, few years in, in not only just getting this off the ground, but sustaining the movement? Well, pitfall is 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 like probably the um, the uh, the roadmap. I think the word resilience that we hear today is something we've lived for the past. I've lived for the past three years. One of the biggest challenge in our world is that we converted product that normally is known to be a lesser quality, and especially in in the last twenty years or so of you know since two thousand, we've actually upgraded the kind of product more into the 
higher end of life. So we have to convince people that I've got these either at sometimes concept ideas or, or because they lived uh, bad stories with recycled material to take it back where normally it would not be possible. So that was basically one of the biggest challenges we've had which is now becoming a lot easier because now we've got so much more success commercially. So, but that's probably was one of the most challenging things for, for me is, is figuring out how, what we do and what we say we do could be proven uh, commercially. I mean, it, commercially, uh, socially, environmentally, there's a lot of obviously a huge amount of push to, to, to go in this direction. I'm sure when you started to move forward on all of this, uh, the, uh, shall we say, the, the, the support behind you uh, in, in the community was probably not nearly as strong as it is now. Is that actually a good thing or a bad thing? Well, you know, when you're, when you're a consumer and you may say it's a good thing because you think it's a good thing because you really don't know what it means. So in, in our case, when you're going through dealings, you know, we're doing B2B business. So we're servicing other people that have got engineers and chemists and people that are in these world, roles with very, very specific uh, requirements are also with very specific um, back, background. So for us going there and pro proving what we could do is the, probably the biggest, biggest things I have to say. And I don't have a chemical background, so thank God I was able to hire great people around myself that, you know, at Laverne Group is not one person, it's a whole of, a lot of people that's done that. And from your previous discussions you're having about guts, I think the guts is also the other things that I, we saw, because if I was to take what people would say early on, uh, I don't think I'd be in business today. So um, I don't think you, you, you would think the support only comes after you're very successful. So not while you're doing it, not while you're trying to create it. You know, often, often a hurdle many entrepreneurs face is that, uh, uh, you know, if you're, especially if you're stepping outside the box, is you kind of get this look of, you know, uh, disillusionment as to why are you doing what you're doing. And if you, if you start something with a sense of need of validation, you probably won't get too far. So you have to, you have, to have that internal validation, not looking externally. Um, one of the things I, I found interesting, and, and is maybe some of the buzzwords, but you, you brought up technology. I mean, there's, there, there were three, the plastic care center, the mixing additive center, and the reactive compounding center. Maybe a little bit of a description as to exactly what that is and, and, and where that plays a role. Yeah, well, actually, when you look at our business, normally recyclers, you would think of a, you know, like, you know, like a, some kind of a big crap of plastic somewhere, and hopefully you get, you know, something done in a more like, I would say, dirty kind of a work. We're very, we're a, actually a technology company, and, you know, we've had the great pleasure of working with companies such as uh, Hewlett Packard, for instance, that is a really technology companies. And when they present our company, they basically come in and say, we're two technology driven companies. Uh, ours is taking end of life product and making, you know, making it into new product. So these are are actually things that are being uh, done in our operation that takes these plastics. So when you say about the plastic care center is basically we're like an hospital for the, for the plastics. So we revamp them, we make them work into the application. So it's not only just, you know, we don't just go out and pray and hope it works. There is technology driven by these things. So the words that you're talking, these words that you're talking about are actually technology that we have within our, our process of, of uh, manufacturing. Jean-Luc, uh, right now there's an island of plastic floating in the Pacific Ocean that's about the size of Texas, and many have theorized that a large quantity of that is ours, Canadian plastic. Where does all this stuff go when we throw it in the blue bin? As I do, you know, we do our duty. We know that some of it ends up where it should be, some of it doesn't, but does most of it end up recycled, and where's all this material going? So just on the little word on, on your patch, there's actually five patch around the world about what you're talking about. And, and obviously these are things that happen over the years. Uh, and, and it's not, you know, the, the big thing I have to say just before I get into the blue block and green box, what's really important is that 
the plastic itself is a great material and it took product uh, that was actually not sustainable. Like, you know, they took really efficiencies uh, into the, into considerations in terms of productions and things like this. What happens is what you do with the product at the end of its life. So specifically when you talked about blue blocks, green box, you know, we, we, especially in Quebec right now, it's being looked at and it's going to be revamped. Uh, there's all kinds of, of stories that are not really uh, exciting right now. I mean, uh, the challenge we've had is we actually were throwing stuff to countries such as China a few years ago and uh, for until a few years ago. And then when China decided to basically said, hey, guys, we're not the garbage can of the world and uh, put a what they call the sword, a green sword or a green fence, uh, then that triggered back into our face. So developed countries such as ours and, and Europe, then, for instance, are now are faced with having to take care of their life products. So the green blocks and the blue box uh, needs to be revamped. It was not done properly. Uh, and, and we believe that, you know, I'm, I'm an optimistic by nature. So that's one thing that I see. And I see when you could actually put the effort to do it. Um, I think things are, are aligning itself eventually, but work to be I, done. I want to go back. I want to go back to that moment a few years ago when China decided, uh, as well as the Philippines as well, to send back some of the plastic to Canada. What did that news event mean for your business? Well, it's pure coincidence. So, and I, I like to say that, we, you know, we're lucky. We just have to be hard at working. We just have to work hard at being lucky. Uh, our technology came in in about that timing to do the electronic side. We've been doing this for a long time, but specifically the electronic portion of it was all going through Asia and, and specifically China. Let's 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 China was the one when you talked about Philippines, what happens? These are the things that took after when they started closing down the barriers. So other countries, the other developed countries, such as Malaysia, Philippines are one of them that actually took that. So what you hear right now about this are basically backlash of, hey, we're going to take this and we're going to take uh, action so that you guys can't take care of this. So for us, it's kind of a music to our ears because now people are going to see that this is an important part that we have to take care of locally. Um, you know, you, you mentioned, mentioned uh, dealing with Hewlett Packard. You talked about, uh, you know, coming in together as a technology company. So who are your clients at the end of the day? Are, are you know, are, are your clients working, are you working in tandem with large companies so that are producing a lot of this or are you after, uh, kind of aftercare? Uh, well, actually, it didn't start it exactly with the companies that are producing it, but actually what's really exciting right now, HP has really been the one of the initiators. They have this in their DNA. The, the, the sustainability aspect of it is something they add. So we've had them for over 20 years. So it's a proven fact, and they were actually very vocal in what they did. So from a, from a commercial point of view, they actually talked about us very often, which we, we are very grateful for that. But today we've got other clients in automotive. We've got people such as Dyson, Cisco's, and um, Sonos, uh, Microsoft are coming on stream so a lot of these name brand name that you guys know about are now getting on that bandwagon which is kind of neat and the fact that we've been commercial because what we talked about today is something that we are actually commercial so we do things at scales and we also service these clients globally so although our business started in in montreal but we service them throughout the global globe and that's also another important part for these guys to be uh, serviced at jean-luc you have facilities and partners around the world you built recently a facility in haiti Tell me about the dual mission there. There's obviously an important social mission to discuss. This is a country that has experienced incredible hardship in recent years following the earthquake. Also a strategic element there as well because they're in the middle of the Caribbean um, where there is a pretty prominent uh, problem with plastic waste as well. So tell me about that, that dual mission in Haiti. 
Oh, that's really an exciting uh, moment for me because a couple of years ago, um, one of our, our clients, HP, just to name it, was actually looking to do good in terms of um, you know countries and uh, you know things what they could do. And specifically in Haiti, they're looking at you know what we could do. There's they went there and they saw all these plastic laying on the ground and everything, and they knew that we were doing the recycling part of it. So they said, hey, what about taking this on? So I personally got involved down there. I went in and for about four years, we started collecting it. And then I, I realized, you know, that this is really was going well. And I said, hey, what can we do better? So we decided to put a factory down there. So we invest in money. So late uh, last year, we actually did it while it was the COVID going on. So that was another plus to it. We actually installed the equipment um, through our cameras and having folks that never done it out there. But uh, we've been now commercially uh, doing um, uh, the recycling, the operation manufacturing in 80 since October. And we basically take product before it gets dumped into the ocean. So, you know, you talked about ocean bound plastic. So that's what we do. We take it back, we clean it. We, we then are able to create real jobs on the island. And by the same token, we create great product that could be put into all kinds of applications for our clients. So this is, uh, this is really uh, something I'm really proud of, of having done. Yeah, you're dealing in an environment that has a very, very high rate of unemployment, uh, you know, you're bringing jobs to. So, you know, while there is a commercial side to it, there is definitely humanitarian social uh, part to the mission. Um, interestingly enough, you have uh, two other uh, facilities, one in Vietnam, which is an additive mixing and reactive compounding center. Uh, and you have a new one that's opening in, in Belgium. Uh, maybe talk to us about those two facilities and who, uh, who you're targeting and what you're targeting in, in those regions. So Vietnam has been there for about 10 years. So, and in fact, when we look at the Laverne Group, uh, often we hear we're like Canada's best kept secret. So people don't really know of us. It's mostly our client that talked about us, which is one of the good things we see our, our what we do. But uh, Vietnam is was basically to replicate what we did over here in North America to service the Asian market. Uh, when you look at collections, there's not much going on out there. There's not really good um, collection system going on in Asia, but we knew that we needed to be in those locations. What's happened in the past couple of years is the fact that the green sword has created that really pressure on, on figuring out ways of, of uh, collecting product locally. So very soon you'll have a hard time being able to cross go across borders on end of life products. So for us, we saw, we see the writings on the wall. So we have to be able to be able to replicate what we do. So uh, Vietnam is continuing to grow like leaps and bounds, but we knew that we needed to also start doing something in Europe. So our facility that we're installing right now in Belgium will be the first of many that comes, but it basically replicates our technology, what we've done over here uh, in, in, in Montreal, we're now gonna be doing this all over the world. So in a couple of years, you'll see a lot of these being installed to be able to collect closely to our, the end of life products. And also that by the same token, service, service clients globally. So the, the purpose of setting these up, other, other than strategic from your perspective, that this is a future of what we are going to see when it comes to uh, waste disposal or not waste disposal, but um, plastics disposal, that we're no longer going to be allowed, as, as Dan said before, drop it on a tug and, and, and send it out to sea. We are going to have to be responsible for our own waste. Yeah, that's, that's the, one of the reasons we do that. The other thing is we believe that the kind of business we're getting into, um, there's a lot of volume. We're talking about billions and billions of pounds, right? So it's, it's a lot of product. Uh, for us, being able to be able to replicate this and doing it at scale through a lot of clients is also a need for us to expand. So, you know, our business is very capital intensive from a manufacturing point of view in technology, but also having the closeness to the clients for end of life products and things like this also will serve its purpose. So it's basically replicating all these plants 
all over the world and being able to do it wherever there's collection systems that are being implemented or what we could be part of implementing it. And the same thing on the 80, what we did on the ocean-bound plastics in 80, we also are doing the same thing in other countries right now. We've got some uh, project going on in Africa, some other projects in, in Vietnam, some projects in Cambodia. So the countries that are in need of cleaning up the, the country where they actually have very close to oceans, we're also going to be doing that part out there. So I, I think I've got a few more years to go before I could even, I don't even know how to say the name retired, but um, I've got a few more years to go. Do you think you're going to be able to move from country to where your facilities are, or you're going to have to set up in those regions? Are you going to we, be able to control the, the flow? We basically replicate, like, so what we do right now in, in Belgium, it's basically a, a whole new ent entity. It's, it's from the same technology, but we believe that we'd like to find local people. Like in Vietnam, for instance, we have no expat. They're all Vietnamese people. We train them. Uh, we put all these programs in place. In 80, it's all uh, Asian people that work there. So we, we, we believe that we're able to create these, uh, these uh, work locally. And we, be, we believe also that we could use these people and be able to train them. So our goal is to be able to do this everywhere, but with the local people. Excellent. You mentioned before tons and tons and tons of material. Uh, you know, when, when, when most of us think recycling, most of us think that's how you get paid, right? You, you pick up a truckload of stuff, weigh it, and uh, thank you for taking that off my hands. Uh, your business model is very different. How, how do you get paid? Well, we, we get paid when we make the product. The end-of-life product is not – we pay for that. So we actually are in a systems where we normally have to pay for the product. Like even for 80, we pay the collectors, and that's why they create their jobs. They're, we're, they're collecting for us. Uh, so for us, when we get paid is when we make the finished products to our clients, and our clients are paying us. Uh, on, on per pounds or per kilos on the resins, on the pellets that we sell to them. That's how we make our money. Okay. Um, maybe I, I think, uh, Dan, you used this term earlier and maybe just uh, clarify the, t the term upcycling. Uh, you know, a lot of people know the term recycling, but maybe just define upcycling, upcycling for us. Well, we, we believe that when we make product that actually goes into a higher value product instead of going to a, like, let's say, a small non-critical items, there's more value. The other things is the clients that are we're, we're talking about, once you're able to produce that product for them, there's a lot of longevity. So we bring that, what we call upcycle to where you normally would use virgin. So it's not just recycled, it's upcycle. And that's why also when we talked about technology, there is a lot of technology that gets up there. I often say that there's a huge difference between making a good product and a great product. And we have to make a great product because a good product's not good enough for the kind of applications we're in. We're niching our business because it's very, very sophisticated plastics that we're selling to these people. But in returns, we've got long-term clients that are willing to uh, get on the on the bandwagon for us for a long time. So we're not looking for a, a, a transactional business. We're looking for collaborations. In fact, I like to say that in our business, you need three, three attributes. You need collaborations, you need transparency, and you need integrity. And these, two, these three things normally makes, makes the thing go very, very well round. For manufacturers, how competitive are you priced versus the, the raw materials themselves if they, they weren't recycled? That, that's, that's probably one of the most exciting questions, right? When you hear about pricing, because pricing is often one of the conversations. We got out of that price trap a long time ago, because if you look at virgin product, you normally fluct you see a fluctuations over time. So if you look on a five-year basis, you will see ups and downs, a little bit like, you know, go up, one goes down. And now we're actually in a very upswing. So we see cycles. 
we come in in a very different model. We offer them longevity, stability on pricing if they want to, or what we do is we refer to a, a very specific reference, which really it's really irrelevant to what our business is, but we refer them and we, we offer them a base and a top pricing. And that's how we've been able to go through these things. So in general, our product is actually very competitive, but you got to look at it on a three to five year prices. And, and normally when you buy virgin product, you never, you never see pricing going gone for two, three years. We're able to do that. We've been able to do that with our clients, which shows the, the whole level of, of, um, of collaborations. But also you talked about, um, you know, you're able to put a product there and have the same price for a long time, which is not something that you see in today's world. Is this somewhere along the lines of, uh, you know, uh, futures pricing in commodities? I mean, you, 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 are you in that area yet in terms of uh, pricing? Are you fixing out a price or is this just purely contractually based? We basically are, you know, we, we when we do make product for our clients, we also want them to be sustainably, sustainable from the fact that they could be competitive. So we're not looking at trying to say, hey, our product is worth more money. What happens, though, is that when you look at the market of plastics, there's offer and demands. Right now, the, the whole offer and demand is such that plastics has gone from the past 12 months. The price is almost triple. So it's really cr crazy right now. The price is just going out there. I'm not going to say that the price has got more expensive because the product to make is more expensive. It's offer and demand. In our case, if you look at it, you've got the logistics of collections. That's really a cost, right? The rest is our technology, the way we have to operate this. So, And ours is very, very automated. So we're not having that much of a, a dent into the pricing structure there. But it also has to do with the general generality of it. So normally, if you look at a five-year pricing, we normally are able to offer uh, cost savings to our clients or being cost neutral. And often when you look at, at the, the whole notions about recycled product you often see product normally is, is voiced as a more expensive products but it depends on the time of the day so last year our product for some of our clients that are stable pricing last year our price may have been more expensive than what they would buy from a virgin product but this year our product is much cheaper than what they would do so again i go back to my old thing about collaborations i think long term our pricings are going to be very competitive i also think that there's going to be other technologies that's going to come on stream and i believe that some of these are, are from virgin producers and I think what that's going to trigger, it's going to trigger that virgin price is going to be more expensive because recycle is going to be part of their compositions, which then in turn will make our business even more cost competitive. So I'm, I'm looking up at the future being very bright for us. Fascinating. Uh, Jean-Luc Laverne, um, I mean, this is just so much information on the developments of where this industry is going. It's so relevant for us all. Uh, thank you for your time, and we'll have your one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur in a few minutes. But first, we welcome back Ernie Furt, international tax partner at FL, to talk about international taxation and how to get results on the ground when you do have facilities around the world. Ernie, welcome back. It's always a pleasure to be here especially for the last show of the year. It seems every year I seem to do the last show in one, one way, shape, or form or another. Well, we like yeah. to end, Mike, with, uh, with the best advice on taxation because that's what everyone's worrying about in the summer. <laughs> What's, what is the next quarter going to be like? Um, and especially complicated when you have businesses uh, and manufacturing all around the world. Of course. You know, when you have businesses all over the world, you have to just look at how you're going to deal with, with each other. If you, if you just buy from somebody who's a third party, it's not a big deal. Whatever that price is, is the price you're willing to pay and the price they're willing to sell it at. But if you have your own companies all over the world, then that's something else. And you have to take a look at some transfer pricing stuff in between the countries. And then there's tax treaties that govern in between countries. A tax, what, what is a tax treaty? A tax treaty is basically the referee between two domestic laws. So a referee between Canada and Belgium, for example would be the tax treaty between Canada and Belgium. 
So it decides on certain things and where certain things are taxed and where they should be taxed. So I find very interesting, Ernie, you brought up the term transfer pricing, kind of just blew it in there like it was nothing. Uh, When in fact, transfer pricing may be one of the more (laughs) complex uh, pricing models and and, and tax situations that exist for for manufacturers selling to themselves or to their own companies in different jurisdictions, because every government wants their pound of flesh. Uh, Maybe take transfer pricing a little bit deeper than, than, you know, brushing it off. Okay. Uh, What is transfer pricing? Transfer pricing is something that's fair for each each government, each country. So each country looks at it from their perspective. Each country wants the biggest piece that they could possibly get. But at the end of the day, once again, that treaty become, comes in and there, that referee process may or may not happen if the transfer pricing isn't fair. Now, how is a government such as Canada alerted for transfer pricing? If there's intercompany sales and there's intercompany transactions that are greater than a million dollars, corporations produce a form called the T-106. On that form, they ask you about transfer pricing. Have you, do you have the contemporaneous information on hand right now? And if you say yes, and they call you and they say, oh, okay, great. You know, Mr. Delmar, can we please see that transfer pricing information? And you say, okay, sure. Uh, you You have 90 days to produce it. Well, you better have it. Uh, within those 90 days or else you have 90 days to prepare it. Uh, and, and there's different transfer pricing methodologies. You really need uh, an, an economist to help you work this through. We, we deal with a few different groups that specialize in transfer pricing, uh, which, are th- which is through our network in the States. And they look at these things, they'll come up with a, with a fair price, you know, whether it's a comparable uncontrolled price, you know, wh- whether it's a cost plus method, whatever method is acceptable, because there's like, they mention on this T106, basically uh, six types of transfer pricing methodologies, plus there's a seventh called other. So at the end of the day, you got to make you got to make this determination. You got to work together with your partners worldwide in order to put something together that works for each country. I'm going to dumb it down for some of us that you know don't necessarily understand that whole concept the same way you would be uh, susceptible to. Is that the reality is if I produce goods in Canada and I sell them to one of my own companies in the States, okay, transfer pricing determines the price with which I sell from my company to my company, ensuring that the proper amount of profit stays in the proper jurisdiction for tax purposes. Is that a pretty safe, you know, beginner's analysis of transfer pricing? I think it's a very safe beginner's analysis because what the, what the governments don't want you to do is they don't want you to all of a sudden hide profit in a low tax jurisdiction. So that's why transfer pricing exists because you know it's very simple to, to pick a low tax jurisdiction and allocate all the profit over there. And you can if it makes sense, if you have people there, if you have business there, if you have a factory there. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, our international network in, in the U.S., but we're part of an, an international group called Leading Edge Alliance, or LEA Global. Um, and, uh, you know, Ernie, I know you spend a lot of time on, on the international tax front with this group. Um, you know, one of the things that's very difficult is having, you know, for Ernie to have the knowledge in every country in, in the world in terms of what the boots on the ground are going to look tax-wise. Maybe give us a little bit of an idea of how you use the international network and the relationships that are built and how that comes in handy and, and useful for our clients. The way I view international tax is I will look at it in, in the Canadian domestic content 
take it to the treaty between that country, then speak to the person on the other side of the world, uh, you know, in Vietnam or, or wherever it may be, where they're going to tell me what their domestic law is. And I'm going to say, okay, I want to set up something in Vietnam that works well with Canada. What is a good tax structure in Vietnam? Then I will compare it to, to, to how it works and, and snakes through the treaty. And eventually we'll have a good, uh, a good result for both the company in Vietnam as well as the company in Canada. Same thing holds true with the United States when I do that with them because there's certain companies that don't work for U.S. purposes, like an LLC doesn't work. Or it works for U.S. purposes if you're completely U.S., but if you're Canadian, an LLC is not a good idea. So there's certain things that you have to know about the domestic law of the other jurisdiction, whereby they're going to recommend certain structures that are great for the people of that country, but not necessarily great for the people of the other country, Canada. Yeah, the, I think the international association angle really is 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 about you know strengthening your bank, bench strength at the end of the day. It's that ability to have answers without having everybody in Montreal know the answers around the world while actually going to somebody in, uh, on on uh, on the ground in those areas. And I, and I think that's a huge aspect. And and I know Ernie, you've spent a lot of time with a lot of people on an international to build these relationships. And and I think people need to recognize that uh, you know having the uh, the comfort and the uh, relationship in order to reach out to somebody uh, is much it's much more complex than uh, flipping through the phone book or, or or googling a name well you want you want to call Jim or Tom or Phil or whoever you're going to call or Susan because they know you they know what you want and at the end of the day they'll work the way you want to and it'll be a one-stop shop for the client which is what we want as a global entity Ernie Furt international tax partner at FL thanks Ernie enjoy your summer they shall and lastly, we'll turn to Jean-Luc Laverne of Group Laverne and ask him for his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur. Jean-Luc, your thoughts? Well, I believe you got to pursue your dreams. You know, we've talked about guts. We talked about what I do. So in my case, you know, I've, I'm basically disrupting this, this dinosaur industry of petrochemical. And coming into this, this um, new era, I think it makes sense. And if I didn't have that, uh, that uh, I guess, uh, resilience and, and that, idea that dream that actually I was coming to fruition today I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing so my my advice is if you follow your dream push it and go all the way guys thank you so much Jean-Luc Mike final thoughts on a wonderful season yeah, Dan. You know what? It, it, we, we've I think we've taken things in a different direction this year. Uh, we've we've seen a lot of different uh, successful environments. Uh, we've seen, interestingly enough, a lot of companies in spaces that were traditional that are now technology companies. Um, I think we've we've approached the uh, the social aspect, whether it is environmental or whether it is uh, you know social change. Uh, and, and I think we continue to to try and be representative of what's going on in the marketplace. And, and I would like to thank, you know, obviously I'd like to thank you, Dan, for, for walking me through this whole exercise. But I would also like to thank all our guests along the way, because I think that, you know, their stories and, and, and their, their past and their futures are what inspire us to continue to move forward. Jean-Luc, I want to thank you for your participation on the show today, as well as our guests from the, the past season. And Mike, it was such an interesting season. I mean, starting uh, it off earlier this year with broadcasting remotely and getting those emergency shows out, uh, really an incredible effort from uh, the, the team at FL and, uh, and my team at TNKR. So at FL, thanks Mar- Marjorie Valsin, who is the executive producer of the program, uh, as well as Ariel Blais, who produces the show. Um, Fernando Helso, Technical Director at TNKR Media, and all of my team as well. It's been a real pleasure to be with you guys again 
this year and uh, looking forward to more conversations with you in the fall, Mike. Have a safe summer and, uh, you know, big thanks to Fernando for last week because uh, I think we might have spun our wheels without him. So, uh, you know, it's always it's always great to work together. Uh, we're off we're off on uh, on a summer break, but uh, only from the radio show, because I think the reality of what we're coming back to in the fall, uh, not only the radio show, but I think coming back to work is going to produce and, and provide uh, a lot to look forward to. So have a safe summer and uh, we'll uh, be talking in the near uh, the near fall. Don't forget todaysentrepreneur.org to hear the entire backlog of catalog of seasons. The catalog is 12, 13 years long at this point. Uh, todaysentrepreneur.org and subscribe on iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. And we'll see you back here in the fall. Take care. Thanks, Dan. Good talk.